Hi, uh, it's Jazz here. I'm with my mom. Nadine. And um, today we're going to be discussing soul value, which was a term that Diana Barry um, described in her book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh. And um, it was seen as an indirect act of rebellion um, during slavery through uplifting and unifying the black community. Uh, during slavery, uh, it was very tough for black people to really see a better future when they were going through all the atrocities that they went through. But soul value, um, Diana Berry ex- describes, was developed as this um, rebellious um, soul within the black community that was um, used to bring that hope and this was shown through um the church it was shown through even fashion and food that they created pretty much anything that was done within the black community for the black community so um i'm here to talk to my mom and maybe just ask her uh how soul value has impacted her life as a black woman So after hearing Diana Berry's description of soul value, how is this presented to you in your community? Great. Well, I'm originally from Jamaica, and so, you know, I identify as Afro-Caribbean. And um, when I think about a great example of soul value historically in Jamaica, um, I think of uh, a famous slave nanny who led other slaves um, from her plantation and then many others gathered similar to Harriet Tubman um, led them up into the mountains of Jamaica to form a sort of free society Um, and you know a, a free very well guarded society to the point that uh, it was known that the white plantation owners, they call them the, the slave masters, were terrified of going anywhere near even the base of the mountains um, for fear of uh, meeting up with Nanny or her uh, many comrades who were in the hills with her. And they formed a beautiful uh, free society um, where they lived um, as comfortably as possible and no longer had to be treated the way they were being treated. Um, and so she actually became one of our national heroes and is the only female national hero in Jamaica, seven heroes, and um, just is a great source of inspiration, um, such a trailblazer during such a horrific time who, you know, taught herself and other slaves um, how to take freedom in their own hands. Um, and when I think along then of the different ways in which uh, soul value is, I mean, some contemporary examples of soul value in Jamaica, one that stands out to me is Rastafarianism. So, um, Rastafari, Rastafarianism, as you know, 
in the religion on the one hand, but also uh, the, the hairstyle that Rastafaris wear, um, the dreadlocks, right? Which, of course, um, we're probably aware that there are people who wear dreadlocks, but they're not necessarily practicing the Rastafarian religion. But both, I would say, are seen in Jamaica as um, a sort of expression of soul value. Um, simply because Jamaica, the, the latest, uh, the last group of colonists that colonized the island were British. So before that, there was the Spanish. And so the British, as we know, uh, stereotypically um, very kind of proper and in their manner. And, um, you know, manner, dress, and, do you know, just a certain profile of how you would carry yourself as a colonist of Britain. Um, we, be, we became an independent nation in, this, in the 1960s. However, but as you can imagine, remnants of colonialism, um, you know, mainti were maintained even post-independence. And to this day, I would say there are still remnants of that. And so, uh, you know, Jamaicans, even black Jamaicans still held, heavily held that lens of this kind of um, proper way of functioning mm -hmm. that was passed down um, and so Rastafarianism then um, kind of was an awakening of the African roots that we have as, you know, African slaves came to Jamaica. Um, and so the culture of um, a serious part of our roots, um, well, there's an awakening of that in the practicing of the Rastafarian religion. That's one of them. Um, as well as uh, just the down-to-earth, rootsy style of Rastafari, um, uh, which is a very kind of grounded, Afrocentric way of functioning. And the hairstyle as well, um, with the locked, long dreads, um, was, is, was definitely something very different from what... Um, how you'd have been expected to appear as a British colonist. And, uh, you know, Rastafarianism brought about a, a, you know, great sense of pride um, for those who practice it or those who admired the, the statement that it made and still makes. And at the same time, um, there to this day, back then when it first started and, um, remains to this day, um, there is discrimination against persons who um, wear the dreadlocks, whether they're Rastafarian, um, practicing Rastafarians in terms of the religion, or just wearing the dreadlocks. The, the statement of wearing dreadlocks is something that's um, discriminated against in the workplace in Jamaica. A little less so now, once again, because yeah. of soul value and people have been really pushing through um, the discrimination and standing up against it and speaking about, um, you know, feeling more empowered about the identity of, of being whether just a dreadlock person or 
Rastafari and that um, no one has a right to kind of take that away, especially knowing when the, the island is predominantly people of African descent and, um, you know, Rastafarianism has its root from that continent. Mm-hmm. And so seeing, if, you know, the rebellion is about it being more about who we are than who um, we were supposed to be because of what was imposed on us by Britain. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it seems like Jamaica's definitely embraced this Afrocentric thought more as time has progressed. Um, so n- moving on, um, how do you think that the church uh, or religion in general has uh, amplified or influenced soul value for you? Oh, well, as we know from, once again, back from the slavery days, still to this day, and, you know, for many people of African descent and many people of, you know, any kind of racial identity who um, choose church or are religious in any way or church going in any way, the church has been a place of inspiration and empowerment. So from back in the slavery days, you know, when they're going through the atrocities, church was a, a safe space and a place that brought hope. Um, and so, you know, the practices of worshiping and prayer and all of those things, you know, date back from those days all the way to current day where, you know, uh, people of African descent continue to experience extreme discrimination. And so, you know, the church is where we look to for hope and where we practice um, prayer, you know, in the hope that there will be someday deliverance or a kind of reduction of our experiences. And... um, And then, you know, Jazz, you and I have also talked about the the powerful and them lift every voice and sing. Yep. Um, that, you know, I think was first written by the NAACP. And um, that is an anthem that I would say um, is so moving to me. And when I think anyone hears it, regardless of your race, you can hear within it, not just through the lyrics, um, but I guess also the the music that goes along with it, the melody. It's a very kind of empowering um, and it has a kind of climatic feel to it that basically um, emanates pride and empowerment um and so i i first heard that anthem in church um and but i've heard it in many educational institutions and events um afrocentric kind of events and so that that definitely in addition to prayer and other such kinds of of songs are are means that i think um, people of African descent continue to use 
to persevere through what seems to be never ending in terms of racial discrimination that we all experience. Yep. And I'm glad that you mentioned that you've heard it outside of the church because something that we've learned is that um, Lift Every Voice became kind of a traditional song that would be sang in the beginning and end of many um, meetings within the Black community, whether it be the NAACP or uh, Chautauqua Circles or different meetings that um, have happened throughout the 1900s. And even now it's popped up multiple times. Um, so one thing I just want to bring up is that I know that you have a history uh, with dance. You've danced for a very long time, even in college. Um, so I guess I wanted to talk to you about your experience uh, with dance and how that could have been influenced by soul value, because I know that that's something that we've talked about before. Right. Well, once again, you know, when I speak about being from the Caribbean, specifically Jamaica, and, you know, I explained before about um, our background of being a colony of Britain. So both initially a colony of Spain and then Britain, um, where obviously um, European dances were brought and taught um, back then to the slaves. And um, so from those days, you know, the slaves were taught those dances and I think, it, you know, eventually would mock those dances and try to put their own flavor on it in terms of um, kind of make it more Afrocentric in terms of incorporating the dances they brought with them from Africa with the European style. Um, and of course, you know, if the masters saw that originally, it was definitely seen as a form of rebellion. Um, you know, they would hear the drums going and um, they probably were being in the plantation house and the slaves would be in their quarters. So they, I don't think, always saw what was really happening. Um, but it really was a form of rebellion because they were taught to do things a European way and they sought to maintain their own identity despite being enslaved and forced to learn European dance styles. Um, it was kind of a response that, no, well, we're still going to keep who we are, keep our own identity, even within dance. And then what really was clever, I think, about it beyond, there are so many things that were amazing about that, but they also used dance and especially the the main instrument um, that they used with the dance, which is the drums, which of course came from their African musical practices, would be used during those dances to communicate and arrange what came to be a number of rebellions that took place in the Caribbean. And so through the dance and drumming, they would be sending messages to each other without speaking out loud about what their intentions were. And obviously that's clever in so many ways so that the masters, slave plantation owners were not necessarily aware of what was being planned. And it is said that even they, 
uh, you know, lighter skinned um, slaves who were in the home. And so the house slaves would um, be very useful, even though they were not always allowed to be outside where the dancing took place. But, you know, while catering to the master in the home would, you know, kind of, you know, make sure the coast is clear for the dancers outside to, to continue with what they were doing or to pass along their messages. They would also hear the messages, but be able to distract the master in the home. And, I, you know, I get goosebumps when I think about mm. how they were able to do that and in rebellion maintain their soul value in despite being treated so horribly. You know, they, that's the perseverance that they found. How there must be a way that we can do this. Yeah. And eventually that led to some amazing rebellion, rebellions. And I would say, so that the dances, you know, those same, some of those same folk dances are practiced to this day by the national dance companies of Jamaica. And they travel around the, the world dancing those dances. Um, and the but yet also as years have gone by they've you know modernized the, the folk dances have evolved and the most kind of up-to-date sort of dance form in jamaica which is now becoming world known worldwide is dance hall yeah and um when you see how and it's kind of a takeoff of dancing to reggae music but um kind of a combination of hip hop um, and African dance and different things like that. But once again, um, the very proper Jamaicans who uh, still have a bit of that colonial mentality and lens still see those forms of dance um, as, you know, they, they discriminate against it pretty mm. much and see it as, as very raw and... Um, not something that is some not not they're not very proud of it to to say that so and a lot of the people who do dance um follow that use that dance form um are definitely rebellious in their body language of course and they are very aware of how it appears to those who don't like it but you know doesn't stop them and it's a very um emerging powerful dance form uh, with a lot of um, African moves incorporated into it and so it's another way of retaining the soul value all these things were taken from us from long ago and we are never going to forget our roots kind of is what is projected in that in those dance forms yeah I I think it's just really amazing to talk about it and analyze it because you know dance hall is something that me being younger and like going to visit Jamaica staying with grandma and grandpa and things like that um that's what I grew up learning and like knowing and when you're younger you don't realize the how deeply rooted something like dance hall can be in soul value and the traditional African Jamaican dances that were used as ways to combat their situations during slavery so um I think that's amazing to analyze and thank you for giving me that perspective 
No problem, my life. Thank you to you and Scott for um, doing such a powerful and meaningful presentation. I've learned a lot by working on this with you. Yeah. All right, that's it. Uh, thank you, and tune in next time to listen to Scott's conversation with his mom. Bye. Bye-bye.